0: Welcome to Invention, a production of
1: iHeartRadio. Hey,
0: welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And what's up? It's October. Uh, If you are a listener of our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you already know that we have a tradition on that show of devoting the entire month of October to subjects of a spooky, ghostly, or monstrous variety. Uh, That's kind of our bag. And so we thought we'd give it a try on this podcast, too, because why the heck not?
1: yeah yeah so you know we we're thinking of things to cover, and some of these some of these are topics we might may very well cover in the future We thought oh, we could do chainsaws, <laughs> we could do uh booby traps, you know, uh, but of course, the most obvious one uh, is to consider something about the casket, the coffin uh the you know the uh, something about the containers in which we uh entomb the dead
0: and the vessels of our dead that's right, yeah. and there is more surprising, interesting innovation in the history of this invention genre than you might expect.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it's a pretty basic concept, right? A box into which one puts the dead, and then you put that box uh, any number of places. Right, and, you know,
0: usually it's not going to be something that you're going to have to, I don't know, revisit, do anything with after a certain period of time. So it doesn't need to be a complicated box
1: either, right? It's just like... You're going to bury it. So what kind of features does it need to have? But in that, you touched on like the, the basic human problem here. Like death itself is a pretty simple laid out process. Mm. It becomes complicated or more complicated uh, through our human ideas. And therefore, even something as simple as a casket, it's fine and simple, except people keep thinking about it. They keep worrying about it and what it represents, and they pour all of these anxieties into new innovations. Right, and so I would say th- this is going to be one where uh, the mother of invention is some
0: combination of necessity and paranoid fantasy. Yes. Um,
1: basically, this, uh, the the, uh, uh, the fear of death uh, overwhelming um, uh, necessity and invention. Or, uh, paradoxically, the fear
0: of being alive. We'll yeah. come back to that. Uh, you know what? I learned a wonderful phrase while we were preparing for this episode that I don't think I knew before. And it's that the disposal of human remains has a sort of industry term, and that term is final disposition. <laughs>
1: Be a yeah. great movie franchise, right? I mean, it makes it sound like this is you've you reached your final form. Uh-huh. Like this is this is the ultimate you. So of course, you want to put a lot of money into uh, how how you look and what you are poured into,
0: right? But also, I think of disposition as something kind of like mood, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere between like mood and character trait. Yeah. And so you could be of like a surly disposition, but I guess fi- in finality, you are of a dead disposition.
1: Or, you know, just peaceful. You know, it's like like they're asleep, right?
0: Yeah. Now, you know we always like to ask the question, what came before? So if we're talking about containers or vessels for the dead, coffins, caskets, burial vaults, all that kind of thing, asking what came before is probably going to be looking at the practice of human burial before we were using these these containers or vessels to put people in. And human burial is actually an archaeologically and anthropologically significant practice in the timeline of our species because it's – I mean, this is one of those things where it's hard to know for sure, but it's often taken as a sign of the earliest archaeologically detectable indications of something like human religion.
1: Yeah, burial sites are often a key means of gazing into the past. For starters, like this is a a way where you might find a, a very well, you know, comparatively preserved body of the deceased and you can learn things about their anatomy, how they died, how they lived, what they ate, that sort of thing. But then also, uh, burial customs frequently involve burying the individual uh, with artifacts. Yeah. And those artifacts may be, you know, more religious in, in, uh, in their scope and may reveal things about what these people believed. But then they also might well be artifacts uh, from their daily life. Yeah, the tools they used, weapons they used, etc.
0: It's extremely common uh, throughout human history to bury people with personal effects as if they would need these things wherever they were going next. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of an indication that, again, we don't know exactly how or when religious beliefs first took shape in human beings. But when you see, for example, people putting a bow or a, or a you know a grooming device, or like a comb or something in a grave with a person, it, you can't know for sure what that means. But it seems to be a sign that the people of this ancient time and place may have imagined their loved ones are living on somehow how surviving the death of the physical body and in some way they might need this thing again.
1: Right, yeah, and and certainly certainly that that does become an aspect of many different belief systems, the idea that there is an afterlife, there is another world beyond death. I wonder too how much of it is just through tool use. You know, when we use a tool, Uh, it becomes a part of our body, you know, it it updates our body schema, it becomes uh, an extension of the, uh, you know, the barriers between our self and the rest of the world. And therefore, this kind of like perhaps this innate idea that the tool that this individual used every day is not merely a tool, it is a part of them. And as they go into the earth, and perhaps into another realm, of course, they have to bring their tools with them.
0: Exactly, but whatever is going on there—I mean, when you see uh, humans from the ancient world, from the Stone Age, being buried with tools that they're—they're they're definitely not going to be physically using anymore. You've got to think that there's there's something happening in the brains of the people who are still alive there, whether it's religious or not. Maybe you could even frame it as some kind of secular sentimentality. Mm-hmm. You know, they they want to think about the person there with, you know, resting in peace with these items that they used. Whatever it is, it's, it's something that's transcending the mere utility value of tools, right? It's because, like, if somebody dies and they had a favorite comb— and you're just thinking about pure utilitarian value, you might as well, like, keep the comb. You could use it yourself, or you could trade it for something. Leaving it with a dead person suggests a sort of second-order way of thinking about life and death. Now, humans and hominins have been burying their dead for a long time, burying with grave goods for a long time, like tools and clothing and ornaments. Uh, the Neanderthals buried their dead with uh, with belongings. Uh, the date of the earliest known human burials is disputed. I've seen it estimated that burial of the dead goes back roughly at least 100,000 years or so. Um, but th- there are so many interesting examples of Practices regarding final disposition in the ancient world that are different than what we're used to in many of our cultures today, but are also – you you can kind of see the through lines from ancient history until now. One example I want to think of is the uh, burial practices of the ancient proto-city of Çatalhöyük, which was – it was this early proto-city – From the Neolithic and Chalcolithic periods of Anatolia, it flourished around 7,000 BCE, around 9,000 years ago. This would be in modern-day Turkey. So to to picture this ancient proto-city, you picture uh, all these homes grouped together, which are each like a boxy pit where you would—the uh, roof would be covered and you'd enter and leave through a hole in the roof via a ladder. And then when you're walking around the city, you'd just be walking around this flat area on top of the houses, which are all crammed right up in, uh, against each other instead of having streets between the houses.
1: Yeah, I believe that this uh, this location has come up on the show before.
0: Yeah, it, it's a fascinating site. We could do whole sections—probably probably we could do a whole series on Stuff to Blow Your Mind just about Chattel Hoyuk because there's so much interesting stuff to learn about their culture— It's one of the oldest, you know, settlements of this size that we know about. Uh, But a really interesting thing about the city is that the city itself and these houses that people dwelled in, it doubles as a graveyard because it appears that people in the city of Çatalhöyük would bury their loved ones under the floor in the houses where they lived – But they would also sometimes keep parts of the bodies of their loved ones in the homes with them as like decorative items for a period of time. For example, some of the remains from Chattel show that people would – cut the head off of a dead person's body, presumably, again, a family member member or somebody that you knew or loved, and then they would cover the head in plaster and use ochre to paint a face or some other design on the plaster mask over the real dead person's head and keep that with them in the house as a decorative or ritual item. Meanwhile, the body would be buried in the floor, under the hearth, or under the bed, and sometimes bodies here would be placed in some kind of container, maybe like a basket, a woven basket, or a wrapping of reed mats. And of course, this uh, this civilization—they didn't leave behind any texts or anything. We don't have a holy book from them. We don't mm. know what they believed, what they believed about life and death, and what happened after death. But it's so interesting to try to just try to understand from the physical remains that they left behind.
1: Yeah, because you can go in various directions there, right? I mean, on one hand, you can you can face a a vision in which the dead are presumed to still be alive in some fashion, that the remains still have some sort of life to them? Perhaps they're still speaking to the people in some way, shape or form or it's believed that they speak to the people mm-hmm. or is it something more removed where they, they know that this is the head of someone who is no longer alive but you're able to, you know, to, to make a, a testament to that person out of it?
0: Yeah, it's a truly fascinating mystery and and the the tidbits that are there are so interesting. So we we should absolutely come back to Chattel Hoyek. Uh, But this is just one example of tons of different burial traditions from around the world that established early on a precedent that respectable burial was not one in which a body was just like thrown naked in the soil or left out for scavenging animals. So there are some cultures in which a respectable burial is to be left out for scavenging animals. An example of that would be the sky burial practices.
1: Yeah, particularly in Tibet. Uh, yeah, where the, the idea is that the body is uh, – there are a few different modes of burial uh, in uh, in Tibet, but but this particular mode would be the the ritual um, uh, dissection of the body, and then those p- pieces of the body were then uh, uh, made available to uh, scavenging uh, vultures, uh, buzzards that would then uh, consume it. And it's it's like and it ties into also like the older uh, uh, animist religion of Tibet. You know, it's the mm-hmm. idea that. That your flesh is returning to to these divine creatures, these creatures of the sky. Mm-hmm. Which I have long found rather beautiful. Even right. though uh,
0: even though it doesn't line up with a whole lot of uh, traditions throughout the world that would say that what, what you should do for respect with a dead body is to sort of – hide it, to inter it, to cover it up, and specifically to place it inside some kind of container, whether that be a wrapping of some kind or a special box.
1: Right, which isn't always a possibility in some parts of the world, particularly if you're in a a high rocky region such as Tibet, where there may not be um, a lot of soil in which to bury things, where there may not be a lot of... uh, uh, you know, uh, freely available wood to burn uh, in order to uh, reduce a body to ash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are also some uh, uh, environmental concerns to take into account too.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point to consider too, how like the, the bioecology of the region yeah. uh, contributes to these cultural practices. But I mean, I wonder why it's so common to believe that a dead body, again, this is not universal, but why it's so common to believe a dead body should be placed in some kind of container. Uh, We don't know exactly what the reason for that is. Uh, It's pure speculation on my part, but I kind of wonder if it has to do with a learned cultural association from daily life in technological societies where – Items of value are generally not left out in the open but they are stored inside containers and initially this would probably be for practical reasons like to protect valuable objects and substances from the elements, from thieves, from scavenging animals in the case of foods like in a grain bin and thus you learn over time that – uh, you, when something is of value, you protect it inside a container. And this, when you go to bury your deceased relative, you follow that practical precedent and show that they're a valuable thing by placing them inside a container.
1: Yeah, I mean a container is control. It is uh, it is exercising control um, over and against the rest of the world. Uh, be that container something you put your, your bread in or your grain, or be it the container that you put your family in uh, that you you call your house. Uh, (laughs) And then when when death enters into our lives like that is a a situation where people often feel completely without control. Uh, So, yeah, it makes sense that you would turn to this technology of the container uh, to help, uh, you know, put firm boundaries on what is occurring.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but notice how often objects of religious value are placed inside containers as well. Or even over time, the sacred objects are the containers. I mean, mm-hmm. by the Ark of the Covenant.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or mythic items like um, Pandora's box. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, I, I don't know how much you've seen of like the preparations for the process of Catholic mass. But there's a mm-hmm. heck of a lot of opening and closing of containers. Yeah. There's things in boxes, containers that get taken out, you know. Uh, yeah it's like it's like we're, it's it's a special
1: place, yeah I mean all our rituals really need a good box, you know because you yeah. have a ritual, you probably have uh, paraphernalia uh-huh. and that paraphernalia just can't be left laying around on the coffee table. it needs a box uh, and uh, and so it makes sense that you would you would have a box for uh for also the dead as well yeah, so of course, not all cultures put their dead
0: in containers of some kind, but many did, and over time some cultures developed extremely elaborate types of containers for beings human burial such as like the ornate sarcophagi for the mummified remains of pharaohs and other wealthy figures in ancient Egypt this is probably the most famous of of all the vessels of the dead.
1: Yeah. Uh, now, Egyptian embalming processes, they, they span roughly 3,000 years of human history. So it changed a lot during that time. In fact, you can look at the history of just burial in Egypt and see just kind of like the evolution of burial in general uh, because it essentially begins as pit burials in the hot sand uh, in which they, you know, just the body is placed uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the ground. Uh, and then it transforms and the cosmology that informs the practices also transform uh, and it becomes a matter of continuation of the soul. The tomb is not just a, you know, a, a receptacle for the body, but is kind of a, kind of like a, a spaceship, kind of a vessel yes. for, for, uh, for this journey uh, into the afterlife, into this other world that is, that's, you know, is rather different than I think sort of the modern pop culture idea of a heaven or even a hell. Uh, Like it was the uh, the Egyptian afterlife was like another realm of adventure and intrigue. Yeah, it's full of trials. Yeah, and so you had to be prepared, uh, and thus all the preparations, all these uh, uh, these different funeral practices. Um, You know, but but the evolution of ancient Egyptian uh, funeral practices, uh, you know, puts an increasing demand on the preservation of the the biological body after death. Something that's uh, very much a part of modern funeral practices as well. uh, which it,
0: which is actually fairly recent.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, it like is like the the modern reintroduction of embalming. Yeah, uh, it would be interesting to to perhaps come back to that in the future. Now, as far as mummification itself, which of course is you know just the uh, the, the drying out of the body, mm-hmm. uh, which can occur either through natural or artificial means. Right. Uh, like there are examples of, of bodies that have been mummified just purely because of the environment in which they were left or yeah. perhaps buried. Yeah, bog bodies and that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, as, as far as the, the earliest artificially created mummies, uh, they seem to date back to around 6,000 BCE in the, the Atacama Desert region of South America sandwiched between Chile and Peru.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know you said it's artificial mummification there, but that, that of course is like an Ideal type of environment for preservation like mummification because it's what dry and right. cold. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about coffins. All right, we're back. All right, now we don't know exactly when humans started using coffins. Uh, Some of the earliest evidence appears to be of like solid wooden coffins appears to come from different sites in ancient China. That seems to be something that happened there a good bit. Uh, But of course, there were sarcophagi and boxes in ancient Egypt too.
1: Yeah, the Egyptians seem to have turned to to wrappings, but then baskets and then ultimately wooden caskets during the pre-dynastic period. And that would have been uh, uh, 4500 to 3100 BCE.
0: Now, a question I have long wondered about, but I've never asked until now what's the difference between a coffin and a casket?
1: I don't, know, I don't know, Joe. What's the difference between a coffin and a casket? <laughs> you Hit me expect, with that punchline.
0: Oh, you expect there to be a good punchline. It's not a good punchline. Oh. The difference is shape. <laughs> <laughs> basically, uh, yeah, it's shape and design. So as used today, these terms mean that a casket is basically a rectangular box. Now, it has, that just means roughly rectangular. It can have rounded edges or, you know, like angled off edges or whatever. But it's basically a big rectangle. Whereas coffins are more like that classic classic. classic Dracula box Mm. that you see it's angled to be widest at the shoulders and then to taper off at the head and the feet. So it's got six sides rather than four. And by doing this, you can actually use less wood to create your coffin, meaning that a coffin is often cheaper than a casket.
1: Yeah, and it certainly has become iconic. I remember my... uh, my dad made me one out of uh, probably like balsa wood or something when I was a kid. Life size? No, not life size. It was <laughs> large enough for a GI Joe uh, figure, uh, the small kind to oh, go okay. inside it. But uh, uh, but it was pretty cool. We painted it and everything.
0: Wait, I'm sorry. Which one? A coffin or a casket?
1: Uh, it 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 was um, a coffin. Okay, so yep. wider at the shoulders. Yeah, wider at the shoulders to fit a GI Joe. Yeah. Even though the G.I. Joe, would, I mean, one size fits all with a G.I. Joe, they would have probably been better off going into a casket. Now, caskets and coffins
0: are often made of wood, which of course will collapse over time due to decomposition and breakthrough under the ground. So uh, another thing that you'll often see, and actually you can see this going way back to ancient Egypt and stuff, but th- th- it's a modern practice as well. Uh, and this is the idea of burial vaults or grave mm-hmm. liners that are basically the the coffin or the casket goes inside these and they will go under the ground and they hold the ground up better so you don't get the sunken grave effect in the cemetery yeah
1: um, I I do love a good sunken grave effect though uh, yeah uh, because growing up in in really rural uh, Tennessee uh, we would encounter these. Uh, the, the region we were in it was near Kentucky Lake, so a lot of the people that lived there had had had, had to leave, so that they could flood the area. Mm-hmm. And so you found the remnants of old homesteads in the woods, and sometimes their their uh, their uh, their graves were there, and they were almost always sunken. You would find these sunken graves and these, uh, and also these. Uh, these these twin rows of uh, buttercups that still came up, uh, lining what used to be a, like a walkway to a front porch.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that's spooky, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Halloween. But certainly, yeah. If you have a, a some sort of a more reinforced container around your wooden uh, your wooden coffin or casket, you don't have to worry about uh, about the the, uh, the weight of the soil pressing down into the rotten uh, uh, casket or, or coffin and creating that sunken effect.
0: Now, here's a question, Robert. While wandering among the buttercups in the sunken uh, areas, did you ever hear a tiny
1: voice somewhere saying, "Help, help"? <laughs> No, no. uh, All those voices had had ceased. You got to admit, though, that'd be even spookier. I get I mean, I would – yeah, that would be spooky uh, because, I mean, it would raise a lot of questions about the whole burial process for sure.
0: Well, right. But this actually is not a completely unfounded scenario. This has happened at various times in human history. And however often it actually happens, people have been obsessed with things like this happening – since, you know, for a long time, especially at certain periods in history where for some reason burial-alive literature just skyrocketed in popularity and people got their mind, like they couldn't stop thinking about it.
1: Right. Uh, one of the main areas we're going to look at is, is the Victorian era, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and there's plenty to point to there. But we can also go back to um, to really like the, the, the first century CE mm-hmm. to see some other examples. Um, Consider the first century CE Greek novel uh, Calero by a chariton of Aphrodisius, which uh, Bernard Lang describes as sort of a Romeo and Juliet tale, mm-hmm. except the two star-crossed lovers end up marrying each other at the beginning of the novel. And then he apparently kills her in a jealous rage. <laughs> uh, okay. This is more of a Greek thing. Yeah. And, but here's the thing. She's not dead. Uh, when, a, when pirates bust into her tomb to rob her grave, they find her alive. And so they take her back to the ship. They sell her into slavery. But at the end of the book, the two lovers are reunited. And I guess they forgive that whole attempted murder thing. <laughs> But but still, it is essentially a story of premature burial, um, and of course, there were there were other um, you know treatments of similar things going on at the time. You know uh, uh, you know touching you know the touching on this idea of a, of a living individual emerging from a tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can, you can look to accounts like this and even biblical accounts of, say, Lazarus' resurrection, the, the primary focus of Bernard Lang's paper, The Baptismal Raising of Lazarus. Uh, you can, you can kind of look at these stories and, and myths and tales, I think, in, in, in four different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on one hand, it could be an account of someone that was thought dead and buried prematurely. Okay. The other is that it's a ritual of death and resurrection, a symbolic death and rebirth. Uh, one sees examples of this in various cultures, including some traditions uh, of First Nations tribes in the Pacific Northwest. I think we've talked about uh, that a little bit on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lane describes traditions uh, from uh, the time of, uh, of Cheraton uh, being about a symbolic death that one emerges from immune to or fearless of death. Mm-hmm. And even baptism itself, the, the the Christian rite of baptism, is essentially a symbolic death. Right. Uh, I, I believe George R. R. Martin was probably playing with this idea uh, uh, when he uh, you know wrote about the, the devotion to the drowned god uh, in his um, uh, Song of Ice and Fire books. Right. Uh, where they're essentially doing a, a baptism, but there's kind of a drowning, uh, an actual drowning element to it, uh-huh. and you arise, uh, you know, stronger than before. It's a popular story for a reason. Right, yeah. And so in that, we get into also probably the the purely uh, you know, mythical, folkloric, supernatural resurrections mm-hmm. where the idea is, oh, yeah, this person died or this god died and then they came back. And then another way of looking at it is, well, a misinterpretation was made of post mortem movements. And we'll get more into that later.
0: Okay. So that would not be a mistaken death that where somebody was actually still alive, mm-hmm. but a real death where they were mistaken for actually still being alive.
1: Yes. Or or getting into that weird case where you're like, oh, we thought they were alive and then we saw signs that they were still alive but then they were dead. So Oh, and then of course there are the necromongers in uh, Chronicles of Riddick, where there's this whole rite where they essentially, um, or at least the 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 grand the grand marshal the lord marshal will uh, will will venture into the realms of death and return with supernatural powers.
0: Y'all have no idea the kind of Chronicles of Riddick
1: lore that Robert commands. <laughs> well, he, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that he is a powerful Riddick universe lore master. I've probably seen that that movie more than um, I should have. Uh, let me put it that way, uh, but but anyway, back, back to these just just different categories. I think they do kind of present uh, altogether this idea of the grave as being this place of ultimately of mystery. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, of ambiguity. Yeah, it's it's basically uh, you know uh, it's, it's Schrodinger's cat, right? It's uh-huh. a Schrodinger's casket. Well, you should. Yeah,
0: it's funny because we often think of the grave as like the ultimate finality. It's mm-hmm. like the you know the thing. Above all other things, it is the state in which uh,
1: all questions are closed, right? Well, nowadays, we we tend to have more certainty in this sort of thing. But yeah, you, you go back uh, even just a few centuries uh, to mm-hmm. a time where not everything was understood about uh, – about how the, the, the human body is uh, you know, reacting to different illnesses and injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe they weren't very good at checking for a pulse. Right. And then you have a bunch of essentially supernatural ideas of what death means and how one might come back to it that you have to contend with and what might one might come back as. Right.
0: Now, uh, we mentioned earlier that there were some periods and places in history where fear of being buried alive seemed to be especially supercharged. Mm-hmm. And one clear case here is Europe and the United States during the Victorian period. So like, especially I get the feeling in the English-speaking world, during the Victorian period, so roughly the 19th century, people were obsessed with the idea of being buried alive. I think a good case in point is the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh live burial or immurement, of course, which means like being sealed up inside a wall, which oh, yes. is a similar concept, appears in not just one – I mean, you're, you're probably thinking of the one work by Poe, right? The Cask of Amontillado mm-hmm. where the guy the – two guys are hanging out and one leads another guy down into his basement to try some of the famed Amontillado and then he ends up walling him inside a, a room. I think the story never even even explains what the guy did to deserve it. There's just some vague reference to some kind of insult or slight.
1: Yeah, and it really, I think it kind of works better that way. Yeah, it you know, just leaves it to your imagination, and and it just, you know it could be something very small or something very large, and both both are uh, you know are, are good choices uh, for, for the the, you know, the the horror storyteller. Yeah, he just he cries out for God's sake,
0: Montresor, and then nothing else. Um, but so there's not just that. He references immurement or being buried alive or or uh, grave robbing in multiple stories, just a lot of concerns about what can happen once you're dead and buried. Uh, and so I wanted to refer to a story that I actually hadn't read before we were preparing for this episode. It's an Edgar Allan Poe story called The Premature Burial. Have you read this one, Robert? I don't think I have. Uh, so it, I, I feel like it's kind of anticlimactic, but the beginning is actually pretty funny. Uh, Poe begins – the story by talking about how, quote, there are certain themes of which the interest is all absorbing, but which are too entirely horrible for the purposes of legitimate fiction. <laughs> 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 so he like goes on to point out how it's only because these horrible events are true that they're worthy of exploring and writing. Um, so what's this horrible true thing that the narrator's going to tell us about? Quote, To be buried while alive is beyond question the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it is frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think – The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of all the apparent functions of vitality, and yet in which these cessations are merely suspensions, properly so-called. They are only temporary pauses in the incomprehensible mechanism. A certain period elapses, and some unseen mysterious principle again sets in motion the magic pinions and the wizard wheels the silver cord was not forever loosed nor the golden bowl irreparably broken but where meantime was the soul
1: Wow, that's really good because it's really I feel like he's he's summing up a lot of the ideas and the, the discoveries and the mysteries that were uh that were at the center of the Zeitgeist in that time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. These questions of vitality, what is the difference between life and death? Later on he so he starts from here to get into a bunch of different stories of basically of people being buried alive and, and coming to horrible ends or being you know saved at the last minute. He also gets into some Frankenstein uh, territory. He tells oh, yeah. a, a totally true story of a guy who is dead and then is resurrected from the dead by a galvanic battery. Huh. So one of the stories he tells, just to give you a kind of flavor of of these stories he recounts throughout here, is a supposedly true case from the city of Baltimore about a woman who was the wife of one of the most respectable citizens, a lawyer of eminence and a member of Congress. So this lady here, she gets a sudden illness. To all observers, she appears to die, right? So everybody's like, all right, she's dead. And he – tries to hammer it home by saying, yeah, her face looked dead, her lips looked dead, they had marble pallor, her eyes were lusterless, there was no warmth in her body, pulsation had ceased, and they leave her out for three days unburied and she's just dead, right? Nothing. But then he says, quote, The lady was deposited in her family vault, which for three subsequent years was undisturbed. At the expiration of this term, it was opened for the reception of a sarcophagus. But, alas, how fearful a shock awaited the husband, who personally threw open the door. As its portal swung outwardly back, some white-appareled object fell rattling within his arms. It was the skeleton of his wife in her yet unmolded shroud. A careful investigation rendered it evident that she had revived within two days After her entombment, that her struggles within the coffin had caused it to fall from a ledge or shelf to the floor where it was so broken as to permit her escape. A lamp, which had been accidentally left full of oil within the tomb, was found empty. It might have been exhausted, however, by evaporation. On the uttermost of the steps which led down into the dread chamber was the large fragment of the coffin, with which it seemed that she had endeavored to arrest attention by striking the iron door. While thus occupied, she probably swooned, or possibly died, through sheer terror, and in falling, her shroud became entangled in some ironwork, which projected interiorly thus she remained and thus she rotted erect
1: man he really paints a you know a horrifying scene there you,
0: but you can also i don't know throughout this whole story you can just tell poe is getting a thrill about this idea like
1: he maybe kind of really wants to be buried alive well there's also kind of uh, like some a lot of the burials uh, that are um you know dealt with they're not like the commoner's uh, grave they're, right. they're the grave of uh, of uh, of higher uh, uh, levels of society mm-hmm. and i guess there is kind of a, a thrill in, uh, in 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 that uh, in that sort of demise you know where right. it's like you, you can afford the more stately version of death but even your stately version of death becomes this uh, you know this this tragic and ridiculous uh uh, situation,
0: yeah well, I would say there's probably also just a a practical reason there for for including the uh, the rich people's tombs because they would be rich enough to have a crypt which you would have reason to return to later yeah. unlike a normal just burial right, but I also agree that yeah you're, you're on to something about like the the class dimensions of imagining this kind of thing. Um, because it also like, you know, it, it, death kind of levels everything, right? Right. Um, and he, he tells a bunch of other stories within the short story. He Eventually, the narrator reveals that he is obsessed with the topic and that he's terrified of himself being buried alive and has gone to all these great lengths to prevent being buried alive. And then there's this kind of anticlimactic ending where the narrator wakes up in a dark, confined place and he thinks he's been buried alive. Then he discovers he hasn't. And this helps him get over his fear. And I'm like, come on, Poe, you can do that's not a great ending. You can do better.
1: <laughs> like the, the ending needs to be that, that help me. I've been uh, buried alive.
0: I feel like that'd be better. I don't know the ending where it's just like, oh, no, I wasn't buried alive and I'm better now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, how do you land it, though, especially if, if you're if it's you know written in the age where uh, there's got to be this uh, this, you know, presumed means by which the manuscript makes its way into your hand. So it's like you would have to write like, I have been buried alive. I am I am writing this by candlelight in my casket. Uh-huh. I do not know how long the light will last. <laughs> I will um, – I, I, like and then how does he get it up to the surface? I don't know. Burning a candle in your casket is a terrible idea. You're using up your oxygen. Well, how's he writing then? <laughs> I, there's so many – see, this is exactly why Poe said, okay, I was just – I just woke up in a dark room. It's it, fine. It was the plausibility issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, so one thing Poe is really dead set on is that this kind of thing happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I think he might be overstating the frequency with which live burial actually happens at the time, Uh, but it does appear to be at least a real and we'll explore that in a minute later, maybe reasons why people thought it happened more often than it did. Uh, But it does absolutely appear to be a real terrifying obsession. For lots of people in the 18th and 19th centuries, for example, I came across the story of the Polish pianist and composer Frederick Chopin. He was apparently so terrified of being buried alive that he took precautions that ended up making his body an object of later science. Hmm. So – I was reading about this in a news feature from the journal Nature from 2017 about research that revealed that Chopin's death in 1849 was caused by complications due to tuberculosis. And this was detected from a kind of like a swelling around the heart. How did we figure that out? Well, we figured it out because Polish researchers had access to
1: Chopin's heart pickled in a jar – Oh, man, he's going old school here. It's like the ancient Egyptians with putting their their organs into jars. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah. Um, And so apparently what happened is that Chopin's last words on his deathbed delivered to his sister were, swear to make them cut me open so that I won't be buried alive. And his sister did as she was requested. She ordered an autopsy in which Chopin's heart was removed and pickled in a jar of brandy. Well, that's one way to be sure. Right. I mean he's he's saying like I'd rather – I'd rather you cut my heart out than me be buried alive. And in fact, this reminds me of uh, this thing that I've read about before that's been declared the world's funniest joke as determined by the psychologist Richard Wiseman of the University oh, of Hertfordshire.
1: Yes, I've heard this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: He's got this website, Laugh Lab, where he was uh, using like an online rating system to try to discover the joke that had the widest appeal across different cultures and according to him – This was the funniest joke across different cultures. Two hunters are out in the woods, and one of them collapses. He doesn't seem to be breathing, and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps, my friend is dead. What can I do? The operator says, calm down. I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence, then a shot is heard. Back on the phone, the guy says, okay, now what? which obviously, I mean, we've both heard it before, so we're not laughing. But I don't know. I do think that's pretty funny. It
1: it is. It is a good joke. It is a solid
0: joke. And to make a joke better by explaining why it's funny, (laughs) uh, I mean, it's the same thing going on with Chopin There is like, make sure he's dead. So he would prefer to have his heart cut out or be shot, I guess, uh, as opposed to being mistaken for dead.
1: Yeah. uh, I read of some other um, similar uh, um, efforts that were made to ensure that uh, a body was dead prior to uh, uh, to interment, uh, Hans Christian Andersen and Alfred Nobel both apparently requested that their veins be opened prior to burial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, better to bleed to death than to be buried alive, I guess. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how modern embalming procedures tend to remove the fear of this occurring, because mm-hmm. essentially, if you're going to undergo modern embalming, a lot of terrible things are going to be done to your body, that if you're still alive— um, you know, they 're probably going to kill you, I mean they are going to kill you, right you prefer they not happen yeah. right uh, so it it is interesting that uh, uh, Stephen King wrote a short story about uh, this occurring uh, not a premature burial but a premature um, uh, embalming mm. uh, premature autopsy uh, titled autopsy room four uh, and it's uh, I read it several years back it 's pretty good, it really gives you uh, it really makes your skin crawl. Uh, though I also feel like King—I think this was a—this is maybe this was written in the late 90s. Uh, younger King would have probably gone much grislier on this. But uh-huh. uh, but uh, this in this one, he kind of pulls back a little bit in the same way that Poe does, uh, where he, it, it's not quite as grisly and dark as it could have been. Uh, there's a story with a somewhat similar premise, though it goes in another weird
0: direction by Stephen Graham Jones. I think it's called Welcome to the Reptile House.
1: Ah. Uh. But it's one of these things where I guess all horror writers are going to eventually write that story. That's what Stephen King says. He's quoted as saying, uh, at some point, I think every writer of scary stories has to tackle the subject of premature burial, if only because it seems to be such a pervasive fear.
0: Yeah, it certainly is a pervasive fear. Uh, You know what? I I was reading another thing. I was reading a History.com article by a writer named Becky Little just as another uh, addition about a person who in history – feared premature burial, George Washington. Ah. Apparently, he was terrified of being buried alive and requested that his body be laid out for three days after his death, just to be sure. Even though that wasn't good enough for the, the lady in the, the Poe story, right? They laid her out for a few days and still she rotted erect. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, hey, fun bit of uh, vocabulary. Do you know what the fear of being buried alive is called? No, what is it called? I didn't know this either. It is the the word uh, taphophobia. This is from the Greek taphos, which means like tomb or grave. Uh, and related, the science of taphonomy is, quote, the study of processes such as burial, decay, and preservation that affect animal and plant remains as they become fossilized. So basically fossilization and decomposition in the ground. Now, I think we mentioned earlier that We think maybe people of the Victorian period, Poe's time and all that who were obsessed with premature burial probably believed that it happened more often than it actually did. And a very likely reason for this is that back then, a lot of times when bodies were exhumed, some natural features of decomposition would be mistaken for signs that a person had been alive after burial.
1: Yeah, common examples of this include the appearance of nails or even teeth having continued to grow, Mm -hmm. Um, the release of gas from inside the body, which can even produce sounds, And uh, quite recently, a researcher at an Australian corpse farm, corpse farms are, of course, a uh, places where bodies are left in various um, uh, you know, natural states so that their uh, their decomposition can be observed and studied and chronicled uh, generally to better aid uh, you know forensics mm-hmm. uh, you know if you know like the timeline of human decomposition that gives you an enormous advantage in figuring out like uh, when a body uh, would have died if you find a body out in the woods etc or in the water or whatever the uh, the case may be exactly so anyway this particular researcher Use time-lapse uh, to reveal that a human corpse continues to move significantly for more than a year after death. What? Yeah. Uh, some of the post-mortem movements were expected, uh, but the longer-term movements were a surprise. So what? Just like a
0: spontaneous, I don't know, like firing or... Accumulation of salts or something in the muscles cause twitching. Or
1: yeah, I mean, they described especially like the the limbs, mm-hmm. limbs kind of moving around. You know, and again, this is revealed in time lapse, so it's not like a constant year long flapping of the corpse. Right. I don't know that it could produce <laughs> uh, a scenario like Poe uh, uh, laid out, where like the the, the the casket is knocked off of the uh, the ledge and it breaks open, and then the uh, the the old woman is running around and gets her um, her, her or grave uh, clothes, uh, you know, tangled up around something. I don't think that would necessarily happen. But uh, it's another example how, yeah, if, if you were going into a grave or a tomb and you were at all looking for signs that the body had moved, you might well find them.
0: Yeah, exactly. And often on theme for this month, often some of these same signs that some uh, some people took as Uh, evidence that people had been buried alive are also sometimes taken as evidence of vampirism and other types of
1: undead beliefs. Like the body is larger now. It is bloated. How did it become bloated? Mm. Now, of course, the real answer has to do with the decomposition and bacteria breaking down things inside the body and gas and so forth. Uh, But uh, one explanation uh, could be put forward. Well, clearly this body has been uh, leaving the tomb at night and it's been drinking blood. Yeah. Uh, so while clearly w- we
0: think that this probably people of the time probably thought it happened more than it actually did it did sometimes happen there are plenty of documented cases of premature burial where people were alive they got buried and then later some t- somehow people found out uh, a few cases are mentioned by that in, in that article i uh, I mentioned earlier by Becky little one is that uh and, and this stuck out at me, a case of a, an American woman named Essie Dunbar. Dunbar lived in South Carolina, and in 1915 she experienced an epileptic seizure and lost consciousness. After which she was declared dead. They put her in a coffin. They lowered her into the grave. Apparently, her sister arrived late to the to the funeral and asked to see her sister one last time. So they brought her back up out of the grave, opened the coffin, unscrewed the lid, and then Essie Dunbar sat up and smiled at her sister. And of course, funeral attendees freaked out and they fled. Uh, But she was not undead. She was just regular old alive and she lived – this was in 1915. She lived until 1955. She lived 40 more years after this. And it apparently even still happens occasionally today that people wake up in morgues uh, or in funeral homes having having been like mistakenly declared dead. In 2014, there was a case of a 78-year-old man in Mississippi named Walter Williams who was found dead at his home. He had no detectable pulse. He was taken to a funeral home. And then while he, he was awaiting embalming, he started kicking inside his body bag. And so they took him to a hospital and he was OK. He survived the incident. Uh, The coroner in the case believed or at least told the AP that uh, what had probably happened is that Williams' pacemaker had stopped working and then it started working again. There's even one really crazy story I came across, though the accuracy of this account is disputed. But – with that caveat, it is a story of a 17th century English woman named Alice Blunden who was buried alive twice (laughs) Uh, basically the story goes that one night in 1674 she drank a bunch of poppy tea and then fell into a deep sleep and everybody believed that she had died she was buried quickly and and she stayed buried until a couple days later children playing near the graveyard heard voices from underground and they dug her up and they found signs that she'd been struggling inside inside the coffin But once she was exhumed, there were no further signs of life. So they thought, well, we accidentally buried her alive. She struggled inside the coffin, but then she died. So they lowered her back down into the grave. Then the next day, I think the coroner returned or somebody returned to examine the body. And they found signs that she had continued to struggle and escape, tried to escape a second time, but had died again and was actually dead this time. Uh, But the details of the story are in dispute. Either way, wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like they say. Uh, bury me alive once shame on you yeah Uh, bury me alive twice uh, well shame on me
0: i would say if you think you may have accidentally buried somebody alive once don't put them back in i mean
1: (laughs) give it give it a while i also like how this story kind of implies that the children dug up the body (laughs) like i'm just imagining just wild uh children they're out playing and they're like hey i think i heard a Heard a voice from the grave, dig it up, and they go into it.
0: I think the story is they went to get adults, but that would be great, too. I mean, that makes a great game, right? Yeah. But I think it's time to get to— Okay, so clearly we're faced with this big problem of people being terrified of being buried alive. So— We've got to get to the invention that solves this problem, right? If you are a some Victorian dandy with a paralyzing fear of being buried alive, what are you to do apart from just insist that they make sure you're dead by maybe like stabbing you a bunch of times before they bury you? Or like, <laughs> because,
1: because we've established the necessity right. here. Now, to what extent is a true necessity or just an imagined necessity Um you know, we'll leave that for everyone to decide. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are so, plenty of, of uh, inventions that are made. There are plenty of, uh, of devices and, uh, and products that are rolled out that aren't really speaking to a true necessity, but a perceived necessity. Right. And that's enough to, to move some product. Of course. Uh, so, I guess we should talk about inventions that
0: I would say amount to an escape pod from the grave. Kind of like a rocket from the crypt.
1: Right. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So um, we are going to look at some of the inventions that were rolled out. Uh, to deal with this maddening fear of premature
0: burial. Right. And there were quite a number of these things. Uh, For example, if you want to see some really great illustrations, there's a Vox article from 2015 by Phil Edwards you can look up that collects examples with illustrations of patents for – these are generally called safety coffins. They're coffins that were designed to prevent premature burial. And so if you look up that article, they they even uh, enhanced a lot of these old patent diagrams with color.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, they were really cool because yeah, they basically took what was probably just a little sketch, like a black and white sketch, and they 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 brought it more to life.
0: Yeah, so let's look at a few examples from history. Uh, this one is mentioned in that box article, so if you want to look it up, you can see the illustration. Uh, this is uh, one that is patented August twenty fifth, eighteen sixty eight. The patent awarded to one Franz Vester. And it is basically a a coffin with an escape tunnel. It's got an (laughs) escape hatch. Uh, So the details are that you'd be partially buried with a tunnel connecting the coffin to the surface, complete with air holes. And I guess the idea is that Earth would be filled in around the coffin but not covering the breathing holes. And if you wake up inside, you've got a few options. You can pull a lever to ring a bell on the surface, alerting people to your presence – Or you pull a lever to open a hatch at the top of this little tunnel and then you can simply climb out yourself. The tunnel actually had a ladder inside. And this is not the only model in which you could ring a bell to save your life actually. Quite a few safety uh, coffin patents were equipped with strings or levers that would operate some kind of sonic alarm, usually a bell that would ring on the surface above. And I guess presumably with this one, if, you know, you were there for a few days and nothing happened, then finally they could like fill it in, cover up the air holes or maybe take the hatch off and use it on some other coffin.
1: Yeah, I mean the the degree to which this was actually a threat, you know, this is actually a possibility aside, you know, this is a a pretty clear-cut solution, Mm -hmm. all right? If the problem is I might be buried while I'm still alive, well, let's just make sure there's a way of communicating that knowledge uh, to the surface world should that occur. Sure. Uh,
0: So another safety coffin I was reading about is Le Carnice. This is uh, from 1897. It was a safety coffin created by Count Michel de Carnice Carniki. Who was in the court of the Russian Tsar Nicholas II. And this, uh, again, this debuted in 1897. There's a great 2016 article about this in Mental Floss by the writer Claire Voon, if you want to look that up and, and read more about this thing. Uh, but Robert, I've got an image of it attached for you here. Uh, so basically, you got a standard coffin below, but it's augmented with some devices that go up from the coffin. Uh, so your coffin is connected via a pipe to the surface, and then up on the surface, the pipe attaches to a spring-loaded iron container. Now, inside the coffin below, there is a glass ball dangling by a string or a chain just over the chest of the body inside. So if the body moves, the ball gets nudged, and any nudge of the ball triggers the spring-loaded contraption above, which opens the container to the outside air. And this allows fresh air to get in and get down uh, into the coffin via the pipe. But it's better than that. So the spring-loaded device, if set off, not only lets air in, but it also automatically raises a flag over the grave and commences the clanging of an alarm bell. Uh, And at the very least, the opening of the container and the presence of the tube would allow the person in the coffin to
1: scream for help. Wow, so this one really has all the bells and whistles um, <laughs> if, if anyone out if you've had the experience of uh, of shopping for a, a casket mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I have. Uh, you know, it is kind of like shopping for a car, uh, where the, where generally the salesperson will be there to upsell you on other features and models, um, which can be a little, you know, needless to say, be a little uncomfortable. Yeah. But I can well imagine a scenario where you're in a room, not of just normal caskets and coffins, but safety co- coffins and caskets. Right. Uh, so that you're being upsold uh, on these features. Like, well, you could go with this model. This is our standard model. It has a bell inside. But... To be really sure, wouldn't you uh, prefer to have a, uh, a flag uh, that emerges mm-hmm. and uh, and also this uh, this powered ventilation system? Uh, well, yeah. Th- this has more practical plausibility, I think, than the standard
0: casket upselling, which is like – it is a kind of weird thing, the idea of them, them trying to sell you better coffins or caskets. I think with the implication, right, that, oh, you know, if you really want mm-hmm. to be respectful to your loved one, you'll buy this more expensive
1: thing, which right. seems kind of gross. Or what What would they have wanted, right. uh, you know, is generally the, the way of, of, uh, of getting into that. And, you know, I don't know, this is one of the, the problems about um, or one of the challenges about any kind of funeral practice, right, right. is that... One does it for the dead, uh, but it's not about the dead. Uh, right. the dead, except in these rare scenarios where they're prematurely buried. Right, they, they're really not affected by the process anymore. It's all about the living. Exactly, that's my point. With the safety casket,
0: then it really is about the dead.
1: It's like, or, oh, or, yeah. or it's about the the uh, the person in the casket. I guess to, to be clear. Yeah, uh, but other than that, yeah, it's generally just the domain of the uh, the individuals above ground. Yeah. Uh,
0: Now, another thing I wonder about though with Lick Carnis is like why did the top container have to be sealed at all to begin with? I don't know for sure but I assume the reason is it's to prevent foul-smelling gases that result from decomposition – from wafting up uncontrollably into the cemetery. Uh, so it's like sealed to begin with. But then if you trigger the ball, then it mm. opens up and the stuff goes on. Now, of course, this contraption, it uh, instantly attracted attention and positive press when it was debuted in 1897. It, it became known as Le Carnice. Uh, Carnice Carniki marketed the device in Europe and the United States to an initially pretty warm reception. It was considered affordable even though it's got all this stuff, uh, supposedly the price tag was not crazy. Uh, it, it was considered practical, especially since the above-ground parts of the event, invention could be reused after a period. Of course, to make sure that the person was like really, definitely dead. Mm-hmm. And Carnes uh representatives and assistants would go around doing live demonstrations with him, where like they'd be placed inside the device and then trigger it to signal, you know, uh, to signal escape. Uh, his representative Emile Camille speaking to the Medical Legal Society of New York, uh, was hyping this thing up and, and said in the speech quote, According to the declarations made by gravediggers of the great cities of all countries, when at the end of five years the dead are removed from the common grave, they find in the coffins convulsed skeletons with fists clenched, twisted, and raised to the jaws. In every part of the world, there is not a community of any importance, town or village, where some memory is not preserved of people buried alive. And this memory remains like a permanent terror through
1: all time. So basically just pushing this idea that that we're— we're, we're mostly prematurely burying people.
0: Yeah, it's like it's just <laughs> happening all the time. Yeah, it's
1: just the every graveyard, every cemetery is just like the muffled screams and whimperings of all of the people who've been recently buried.
0: Yeah, uh, Yeah, I think that is definitely overselling it. Uh, and Lake Carnice, even though it got initially good press, did experience some setbacks. One setback uh, was that apparently during one demonstration, an assistant got stuck inside, was like buried in the device to demonstrate it working, but then it didn't work. I think mm. the spring-loaded mechanism malfunctioned, and I think the assistant was okay. They got dug out, but obviously this was not good for press. And oh wow!
1: So they were actually burying the individual in the in the, in the device. I think so, at least oh, wow. partially.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, they were—I mean—they wanted to show off how yeah. good it was—but there were also concerns about false positives because of the sensitivity of the device. Uh, it was pointed out that it's normal for corpses to swell during decomposition, and such swelling could nudge the glass ball and trigger unnecessary exhumations. Right?
1: Yeah, which would be even more traumatic. Right? Right.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure more traumatic than a false negative. I think a well, false negative would be worse than a false positive, but they're both bad.
1: Yeah, well, I mean if 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 you if you learn oh I've prematurely buried somebody and then you dig them up, you definitely want them to still be alive, right? right. I mean it would be terrible, but hey, at least at least we get we can we can move forward. Uh, but if you just dig them up thinking they're alive and then oh no, they're just they're not only are they dead, but they're even grosser looking now, right? Uh, yeah, and that's a funny thing. I mean, there there were
0: dual fears about death at the time, right? People had these fears of being buried alive, but people also feared, sort of feared being seen in a state of natural decomposition. Mm-hmm. You know, like that—that's a, a sort of like acquired cultural fear that, like, that it's bad to decompose, and you don't want people seeing you decompose. The sort of a mummification mentality.
1: Yeah, Ooh, and that's a complicated issue unto itself, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, it is the natural process, uh, and it is the sort of thing that is going to happen to the body. It's something the body does. Mm. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you know, even even those of us you know who have probably a you know pretty you know liberal idea of, of how they want their body maintained, we probably don't you're probably not thinking like public decomposition. We've, we're probably right. imagining something a little more private uh, and something that is even, you know, even if it's a very green burial or decomposition, we, we want it to be, you know, private. Right. Um, you know, the worms may be invited to play pinochle uh, on our scalp, but only the worms. <laughs> You know,
0: this is just making me think back to that statement by uh, uh, Emile Camille talking about all the, the premature burials as this special knowledge that's in the realm of grave diggers. Mm-hmm. So it's like the grave diggers are like the people, this community of people who know about all of the premature burials. And like they've got all of the grave and decomposition
1: secrets. Yeah, well, yeah, I think there's there's something to that, you know. As a as a culture removes itself from the physical realities of death, mm. and generally, you know, relegates those duties to a certain class or a certain professions, mm. um, I mean, it really creates more room for superstitious ideas and and uh, and just general supernaturalism in general. I, I, I've I've uh, I think there is there is a finality to seeing the dead mm. and. My view is that when we prevent ourselves from seeing the dead, from having that, that physical experience of death, like we often don't have a certainty that it occurred. You know, there's always mm-hmm. this room for even like not even a, like a, a sensible doubt uh, or even a conscious doubt. But there is this idea that the person did not quite die as they just suddenly were no longer in my life. You mm-hmm. know, Uh So, I don't know. There are ups and downs to having a, uh, um, you know, a robust uh, funerary uh, custom, I imagine.
0: Uh, Ultimately, I guess we should say finishing up Lake Carnies, it was never really successful. It never really was employed at a wide scale.
1: Right. So, it means that the the fear of premature burial never reached like a real fever pitch to where it was actually uh, resulting in the, the sale of these devices and on a large scale.
0: Well, it certainly didn't overcome the the negative press that the device had gotten for mm. you know for those drawback reasons, right? Uh, But there were other safety coffin models, and people did employ actual safety coffins of various kinds. Uh, You know, many, again, had these bells and stuff that could be operated via a string or via levers. Uh, uh, Other safety coffin models were operated with levers that were triggered by the head or the mouth. I think it was often assumed there that maybe you wouldn't be – you know, you might be in some state where you couldn't use your hands or something. Uh, One really great (laughs) model invented around the year 1900 – is in a patent awarded to one W.J. McKnight for, quote, "...electric device for indicating the awakening of persons buried alive." Uh, so what goes on in this patent here is the person wakes up, they close an electrical circuit, which electrically opens an oxygen tank for breathing and sends an SOS signal through a connection to a wire
1: service. It's just what instantly immolates them in their, their casket? That's Imm- what I'm, immolates them? What do you mean? I mean like we have what? Like oxygen and then a spark? Oh. The, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully no sparks. I don't know. I don't think it's like
0: a, you know, like diving bell kind of oxygen-rich <laughs> environment.
1: Okay. But still, it seems like I've been through a lot I've been prematurely buried and now you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna blast me with air and shock
0: me oh well it's good. it's sending out the the message to okay. you know to whoever's listening I'm not sure exactly what where the wire went uh, <laughs> Though I do think of that Simpsons episode where they uh, they they use the Morse code to send for SOS, and then it connects to a Morse code exhibit in a museum.
1: <laughs> but you know, you mentioned uh, like a diving bell, like the bathysphere, and th- th- this does sound a lot like a bathysphere, right? It's sure, It's yeah. tiny container, and uh, you're you're lowered down uh, somewhere beneath the surface, and then there's there's air, and then there's a an electrical wire for communication, right?
0: All right. Well, I think we need to call part one there, but we are not done talking about vessels for the dead.
1: That's right. We will return uh, next week with the next episode of Invention, and we will roll out some more caskets. In the meantime, if you want to support the show, best thing you can do is rate and review it, and make sure you have subscribed. You can also get it at inventionpod.com. Uh, and hey, if, if, you're, if you are listening to Invention and you are not listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, go check out Stuff to Blow Your Mind, because all October, it's uh, spooky Halloween-themed episodes. Uh, we always put a lot of effort into to putting out some really solid Halloween offerings.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Invention is a production of iHeartRadio.